The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. It's Wednesday, September the 27th, and you're very welcome to the weekly politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. For today's podcast, I was joined by Owen O'Brien, the Sinn Féin TD for Dublin Midwest, and also their spokesman on housing, along with our political editor, Pat Leahy, and Sarah Barden from our politics staff. Later on in the conversation, we talked about accusations of bullying within the Sinn Féin party and what that party's position is on property tax. But we started with this morning's Irish Times lead story about Leo Varadkar and the proposed referendum next year on the Eighth Amendment to the Constitution. So, Pat, your lead story today is about Leo Varadkar and his somewhat ambiguous stance on the uh, Eighth Amendment. Well, uh, I, I don't think the Taoiseach is ambiguous on the Eighth Amendment as such. So, he has said is he, he is in favour of uh, of changing changing the constitutional arrangements that govern abortion and life of the unborn and uh, and the and the woman it's in the constitution is the 8th amendment article 43 so he said he's in favor of changing that what it's not clear is what he's in favor of changing that to and what emerged yesterday and where our story today comes from is that the and a weekly cabinet briefing we asked the government Press secretary, the political correspondents asked him, would the Taoiseach campaign in favour? Because obviously it was announced yesterday that he intends, uh, the plan is, now this isn't set in stone, but the plan at this point is to hold a constitutional referendum on the Eighth Amendment next May or June. That being, as the Taoiseach said in the doll yesterday, the earliest one can reasonably hold such a referendum given the need for legislation to be passed through the doll the need for the current uh, committee, Dole, the uh, Dole and Shannon committee, that is examining the recommendations from the Citizens Assembly. And it's a pretty tight timescale. It is, yeah, that, so anyway. that's, that's, mm. that's the earliest you can do it. So we asked if, if the Taoiseach would be campaigning in favour of this um, of this referendum when it comes, of this change to the Constitution when it comes, and the answer was it basically that depends mm. on what it is, which raises, I think, the, the uh, odd scenario which may yet take shape, and we don't know yet, but it may yet take shape, of the government proposing a referendum that the Taoiseach does not personally campaign for. Now, there's a number of hurdles. would be unprecedented, I'm right in saying. I don't think that's ever happened, I certainly can't Mm. think of a precedent Mm. for it. Now, I think it's important to say there's a number of hurdles before we get to that point. And no guarantee, by the way, that those hurdles will be surmounted. So while everybody anticipates a referendum on abortion next year. One of the more significant hurdles that that has to get over is the backing of the Dáil and Shannad for uh, for such a referendum. And I think if you look at the, and this is something that the, uh, the committee, uh, the, the special committee is currently teasing out, but if you look at the recommendations of the Citizens' Assembly, uh, which recommended uh, changing uh, Article 40, Three three uh, to an, an enabling provision to allow the Eructus to legislate for much more widespread access to abortion than is uh, than is currently the case. Something not entirely analogous, but pretty similar to the UK. The situation in uh, in the UK now. I don't know what Sarah thinks, but I'm 
fairly sure that there isn't majority support for that proposition in the Oireachtas at the moment. Now, whether the Oireachtas would facilitate a referendum on those terms or not, I just don't know. Which might be a different question. Uh, which might be, hmm. uh, or there may be a different question. What the politicians may do is insert themselves into the process to change the recommendations of the citizens, or to, to, to not accept fully, rather, the recommendations of the Citizens' Assembly and instead choose to put something much more restrictive uh, in place. That can, may be the Can, can, can be I just choice. tease this out for a sec before I ask you that, that, that question, Sarah? Because it strikes me what happened over the course of the Constitution Assembly um, the the ground shifted, you know, quite you know quite significantly. So, for example, on the repeal the eight side, they, th- that campaign which has been driving this issue for the last couple of years was very clear that it wanted a simple repeal of the of the relevant article from the constitution, and then it wanted uh, legislation to be set out that would follow pro- uh, providing for abortion services in this country. But the the recommendation uh, actually is for a replacement, uh, essentially to as I understand it, to safeguard any legislation which might be enacted by the Oireachtas providing for abortion against a challenge in the courts, which pushes things even further and perhaps makes them even more complex and seems to me to kind of undercut one of the arguments of the repeal the eighth side, which was always that this sort of thing shouldn't be in the constitution in the first place. It should be provided for by the legislature. So with all these things, you have the two steps. You have the what's going to happen to the constitution and then there's what does the what is the Oireachtas proposing to do after it and they both now seem to be up in the air and potentially messy yeah i think you're right i think the repeal of the eighth campaign would have <coughs> argued very strongly in favor for um the eighth amendment to be removed from the constitution however in the citizens assembly recommendations they provide a legislative basis for the Oireachtas to to legislate uh, for cases of abortion in particular circumstances. So in one way that would be, a, you know, against what their repeal the aid campaigners would want. But I suppose in best case scenario, they'll take it. Um, but with regards to the Oireachtas, I think what you're seeing now is an attempt by the Oireachtas Committee examining the Eighth Amendment to make the Citizens' Assembly's recommendations a bit more moderate and a bit more acceptable to the general public. Because... With regards to what the Citizens' Assembly proposed, I think you will find actually a small number of members on the Oireachtas Committee who would be in favour of the wide range of recommendations um, that the Citizens' Assembly <coughs> proposed. Um, and you would find an even fewer amount in the houses of the Oireachtas. So essentially what the job of the Oireachtas Committee is to temper what the Sem- Citizens' Assembly uh, proposed, make it a reasonable um, make it a prospect that is reasonable has a reasonable chance of winning through the through the houses of the Oireachtas. I mean, Sinn Féin are actually in a very unique position in the sense that um, the two largest opposite the, the the two largest parties in the Oireachtas, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, will are unlikely to take a form a firm party stance and allow on the a matter. Free vote. They allow a free vote for the members. Sinn Féin will argue um, for repealing the Eighth Amendment, as will the Labour Party and Social Democrats and the Green Party. But in terms of just size, they're in a very unique position because I suppose a lot of people will be looking to um, the bigger parties in the Oireachtas to lead them in 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 the campaign, and that you know this campaign will be remarkably unique because we won't have a situation where the government as a whole, it's unlikely from what we can tell, that the government as a whole will take a firm yes or no 
um, during the referendum campaign. And and that remains to be seen, though, because I'm (coughs) not sure it is really feasible for the government, whatever the proposal is, whether it's along the citizens' assembly lines Or or, 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 or something much more restrictive. I'm not sure it is feasible for the government to propose such a thing, but then decline to campaign for it. The government, I I presume, can agree that the legislation should be put to the people. But in terms of taking a stance on whether whether we should repeal, retain or amend the um, constitution. Well, I I mean, I want to bring Owen into this. And in a way, in a way, this kind of makes sense, Owen, because this is a a proposal, really, which is coming as a result (coughs) of a movement of members of the Oireachtas as much as or if not more than members of the current minority government. And it's an expression of the uh, if passed, it will be an expression of the will of the people as put to the people by the Oireachtas, first of all, in the form of the Oireachtas committee and presumably then by some some sort of vote of the doll. And because we're in a different new politics environment, such a thing is unimaginable now in a way that it wasn't previously. Well, I suppose the first thing is Sinn Féin's long-standing position has been repeal the 8th, remove Article 43.3 and then for the Oireachtas to legislate. uh, And our own position in terms of the legislation we've argued for previously has been to legislate for abortion services in cases of... So you don't agree with the recommendation of the Constitution? I'll come to that in a second, but to legislate in case of rape, incest and fatal fetal abnormality. I think what was really significant about uh, the Citizens' Assembly was most of us who have been part of this debate for a long time had a sense in which you know, public opinion was moving in that broad direction, uh, that people by a significant majority would be willing to remove Article 43.3 uh, and would be willing to, to support legislation, maybe not exactly in line with what Sinn Féin had been arguing, but somewhere in that ground of a further liberalisation of services, but in those strict circumstances. I think everybody uh, across the board um, was surprised by the final decisions of the Citizens' Assembly in two respects. Uh, we'd obviously been strongly against repeal and replace, um, and, and, and we're at one with the repeal the 8th campaign. But the proposition actually wasn't to replace Article 43.3 with some substantive proposal. It was purely to, to very clearly give the Oireachtas that kind of constitutional legal power to introduce that legislation. Which it, which it which, has anyway, but yes, obviously, but, but, but I think but, it's but to, to, to it, bulletproof it exactly. against that's, further challenge. I think that caught a lot of people who were watching the proceedings by surprise and people were a little bit unsure about that. Now, uh, what's, what's your view on it now? Uh, my view is, I suppose... I want the Oireachtas to legislate so long as it produces the right kind of legislation. Uh, And if there's a a strong legal or constitutional argument uh, that a little bit of of additions to the constitution would would strengthen that right of the Oireachtas, I think we'd look at that positively. But that's something the Oireachtas committee will will tease its way through. The other thing, though, I'd say is is I think, and I'm not on the the Oireachtas committee, I do think that all members of that Oireachtas committee have to examine very carefully what happened at that Citizens' Assembly. I think the, the, the citizens of the state spent a very uh, significant amount of time carefully deliberating on the information before them so that while all of the political parties go in, including our own, with a party policy, and we have a party policy agreed at successive Ardeshna, um, I don't think you can just ignore the Citizens' Assembly uh, uh, deliberations. I think we all need to consider those. Does that um, mean, given that you just said that the, that the Sinn Féin current position is in, in, in certain defined circumstances, um, and one, for example, is rape, and people have argued that this is a, a, an extremely difficult, it, it, it's completely unrealistic to expect that that can be in some way in, encoded in law as a, a, you know, as, as a justification, in, in a narrow range of justifications. Does that mean that Sinn Féin, as a result of the Assembly, is reconsidering that? I, I'm that not position? saying that. That what I'm saying is, is I think there's an expectation on all members of that committee, um, not to just to go into that committee with their predefined party political positions, but to do what they've been tasked to do by the Oireachtas, which is to sift through 
particularly the work of the Citizens' Assembly, and try and come out with a set of legislative recommendations that will work, that are legally sound. And I think that's going to be really difficult for all the reasons that Sarah says. But I suppose my crucial point is, is we'd like to see the referendum as soon as possible. I was a bit surprised that some people were suggesting they wouldn't be able to meet the deadline of, I think it's of December. Clearly they could meet the December deadline if that's what they wanted to do. There's also no issues in terms of drafting legislation. This government is very good at bringing forward legislation and, and ensuring that it gets through the Oireachtas when it's a political priority for them. So if, if the objective here is to get a referendum as early as possible next year at a time in the year to maximise the turnout and not to, for example, disadvantage students or other groups of people. We want to see that. But I, I do think we have to let this committee do its work without the work being dragged out unnecessarily. And my own private view is, or personal view is, there was a significant piece of work done by the Citizens' Assembly. I think all members of the committee and all political parties need to consider that very carefully in the context of the discussions they're having about what kind of legislation uh, we will hopefully uh, uh, be discussing and voting on. Uh, either side of a referendum. Is there I, scope for Sinn Féin then to alter its position because it, it doesn't go as far as the Citizens' Assembly recommendations. You have an Ardeshna coming up in November. Is it an opportunity then to put the Citizens' Assembly recommendations to the party and see? I, I, I don't see the Citizens' Assembly recommendations being put to the Ardesh, but, but again, that's a matter for you know individual Common and Corley Cantor, etc. So until we see the Clare, we don't know. The issue of, of, of abortion has been a matter of debate at our Ardeshna for a number of years, so you know, there is a, 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 a potential that it will be there on the Clare. But even even aside the Ardesh, I, I suppose... It's unusual I'm, if it didn't I'm, appear, I'm, given that it's one of the subjects for... Well, principal yeah. subjects of public debate just, right now. Just to be clear what I'm saying, I'm, I'm not hinting at or suggesting there's some discussion about changing the party policy. I'm saying something kind of different, which is the Citizens' Assembly is a really significant piece of work. People put huge amounts of time and effort into deliberating on those facts... I think it would be remiss of any member of that committee not to pay due attention to that and consider it. That doesn't mean people will change their positions at the end of that or will come out with different views. But why have the Citizens' Assembly if the Oireachtas Committee then meets and, and doesn't seriously engage with its work? Um, and I think that's the job of this committee. It's, it's actually one of the questions for the debate at large because what happened at the Citizens' Assembly was that over the period of several weekends, in the period of intense discussion, exposure to experts, although some people on the anti-abortion side questioned you know, the fairness and balance of some of the, uh, uh, the programmes and felt that they were skewed towards, um, towards the pro-choice side. But leaving that aside, you know, there's no doubt but that there was uh, intense discussion in immersion in the uh, immersion in the issues. The personal stories of uh, of people were heard at it as well. And following that process, what happened was that the citizens' assembly voted in a much more pro-choice fashion than anybody expected. Uh, you know, there wasn't a survey or there wasn't a vote had, held at the beginning, but um, certainly uh, I, I, I expect, and so do many people who watch this closely, that. A, a, a kind of a liberalising process occurred over the course of those discussions. Now, so the question is, over the course of a long campaign in an abortion referendum, would a similar process happen? Because we know with a broad degree of reliability from polls done in this newspaper and others that the public is not at all where the uh, where the citizens assembly ended up is they're considerably more conservative so would that liberalizing process occur again now i know that people on the pro choice uh, side firmly believe that it uh, that it would, and that's why they want the full and, 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 the full Monty of the citizens' Just finish this point. The people on the pro-life side 
believe the exact opposite. They believe that the, that uh, that that is not the process that would occur over the course of uh, of a referendum campaign. So you have at this point you have both campaigning sides, both extremes, if you like, believing that that they want wanting an abortion referendum on the citizens assembly recommendations because they both believe that they will win it in the middle is the politicians and they are wondering whether to insert themselves in this process because they don't believe the full citizens assembly will be passed and therefore the decision that they have to make is whether to insert themselves in the process to recommend a, a, a less liberal position because they think that has a chance of passing or whether to Owen, give the full... Uh, Owen, full from a purely assembly. political point of view, it seems to me to be arguable that the experience of sitting in a citizens' assembly uh, in a very in-depth experience with a small number of other people being face-to-face with experts in a very intense way is quite different from the experience of being a voter and a, a citizen voter in a, in a referendum observing a campaign. The kind of the levers and the dynamics are, are entirely different. They are, although I suppose you need to separate out the referendum, which is about whether or not uh, the Eighth Amendment remains or doesn't remain, uh, and a far more detailed debate around the legislation. Now, those two things are are intimately connected, and there are sections of the electorate whose decision on whether or not to vote to remove Article 43.3 will in part be determined by what they think the legislative scenarios in, in, in real terms might be. But I think it's unhelpful to talk about extremes in the debate and the middle, and because that's, that's not how I see it. Um, Pat is right. Uh, I think the the outcome of the Citizens' Assembly uh, and the very detailed deliberations and and from what I could see from the outside, very calm and reasoned and thought through uh, deliberations uh, have changed the dynamic of the conversation. And that's not a bad thing, by the way. Uh, That's the nature of these Citizens' Assemblies and that's what they're meant to do. Uh, I think two things. I think, first of all, what would be really helpful is if if we get a really clear commitment from the government that there is definitely going to be a referendum and it is definitely going to be you know early next year and Leo seem to go some way towards that, but also that the government is going to support that referendum uh, if it's proposing to remove something from the constitution. Uh, I would expect the government who's proposing that uh, to be campaigning and advocating for that. I also think we need a serious discussion in the Oireachtas committee um, uh, to try and see what legislation that committee or or a majority of that committee could recommend now. That committee could recommend a position far more restrictive than the Sinn Féin position. So we could be kind of saying, well, actually, you know, there's a, a majority that Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael have come up with, and we don't support that. It could come up with, we don't know yet. And I think that's why that committee, even though our concern when it was originally set up was a little bit like the water committee that I sat on, this was about kicking cans down the road and avoiding actually uh, uh, setting the date for the referendum. It's there. It should be allowed to do its work. It should keep to its timetable. Um, and... Look, the very first campaign I was ever involved in was the referendum campaign in, in, in 92. So I'm part of that generation that this has been a very significant part of, of your, your, your political life and your political identity. And I think what we need is committee to have its debate, see what it comes out with. And then I think we need to have a sensible referendum. And again, look, the Citizens Assembly isn't representative of the population. It is a random selection of people. It's a random selection of people using a, 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 an appropriate methodology for that purpose but it doesn't represent the electorate. Also remember, lots of us have manifesto commitments which we take very seriously. I campaigned in the last general election on a Sinn Féin policy on this issue. Was it the number one reason why the vast majority of people voted for me? No, but it's an issue that came up in the doors. So people put me into the position I am in part because that's Sinn Féin's position in terms of repeal the 8th and the kind of legislation we want to see. Uh, And parties, I think, need to be very careful about that uh, because one of the things that has undermined party politics 
uh, up till now is when parties get elected on a manifesto position and then just abandon it for political expediency, good, bad or indifferent. So I think there's a bit of work for the politicians and the political process to do, but the doll is as representative as public opinion. Um, the doll, in, in, in my opinion, right, in terms of there's a range of opinions there. They might not be in the same proportions, but all of the, the opinions that are out there in the public are in there in the doll. Let's get this committee doing its work. Let's get it finished. I have, I have absolutely no doubt that we're going to be coming back to this subject again, 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 again in the weeks, in the weeks and, and months to come. So just to move on to something entirely different. More and more, Ciancorla, um, even though their politics is totally different, um, Deputy MacDonald reminds me more and more of Marine Le Pen because she always goes back to her script. Uh, she delivers a question, it's scripted. You Thank give you, her please. an answer, you ask her a question and she goes straight back to the script again. Is uh, Mary Lou Macdonald anything like Marine Le Pen? Nothing, nothing like her at all. <laughs> nothing like her. What do you make of that comparison in by the like Taoiseach yesterday? I, I always think when when you're losing the substantive argument, you go on the attack about something else. So Mary Lou was raising a really important point about the cost the cost of childcare, particularly for working in low income families and how families have been crippled. And she was putting a very simple question to him, which is, will he, in the context of the budget, consider uh, increasing the subvention to make childcare more affordable? Completely reasonable proposition. Of course, he's not going to say what's in the budget or not, but Mary Lou wanted him to debate that. What does he do? He avoids dealing with that question. Uh, and he starts talking about Marie uh, Le Pen. Why? So that all the newspapers today will be talking about that remark and not the vitally important issue of childcare. And and there's not there's not a family anywhere that doesn't have somebody crippled by the cost of childcare. It's preventing people from getting into work. It's preventing people from taking extra hours uh, or people in work. It's preventing them from having a good quality I, of I, life. I suppose also what he was saying, though, wasn't it, that what a previous generation would have called hurlers on the ditch. He was criticising for being what he, in his 90s teen speak, called totally bogus uh, in terms of, you know, Sinn, Sinn Féin's position. In other words, that you're not prepared to take on the reins of power to actually affect change yourself. You're sniping from the sidelines. Which is kind of ironic from the party who continually rules out even talking to Sinn Féin about the possibility of being in government. Not that I particularly relish the prospect of being government with Leo but so on the one hand they won't talk to us don't want to be in government with us and then when we make very sensible reasonable cost proposals to improve the quality of people's lives including working people he says oh well they're not really serious about any of that anyway so for me he didn't want to talk about the substantive issue he deflected onto something that's completely irrelevant and the very fact that that's the base upon which we're having this conversation shows that's why he's doing it I, I, I think, and, and it's one of the We've features... We've all been had. We've been had. It's, it's one of the features of leaders' questions, though, and it was the same under Enda Kenny, is that uh, when Sinn Féin raises legitimate questions and puts forward legitimate policy propositions and costed propositions, rather than engage in a substantive debate, they start attacking Sinn Féin for this, that and the other. I think that's poor quality politics, and I think most people see through it. Well, there's a, there's a theatrical element to parts of politics and <coughs> leaders' questions in the doll where the leaders of the opposition parties get up and get to ask the Taoiseach of the day questions uh, of which he has no notice um, is a central element uh, to that. And um, I, I accept what uh, Owen says about, you know, the Taoiseach got up yesterday with the view to creating precisely the headlines that he got today with his accusation of Mary Lou of uh, Mary Lou Macdonald and I was in the chamber at the time and it looked to me like a slightly pre-cooked line that he would have delivered no matter what 
um, Mary Lou's question was about. Even if she said something it, nice to him. It, 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 it should be said now that Mary Lou is no mean practitioner of the theatrical arts of politics herself. And um, so, uh, you know, I, I, I think that what's sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander in that respect. A couple of other things, though, struck me about yesterday's exchanges. We were talking earlier, uh, Owen was observing that the, uh, the, the press gallery was full for leaders' questions. And I think that leaders' questions with uh, uh, with Leo Varadkar uh, in the Taoiseach's chair will be more combative, especially um, towards Sinn Féin and, uh, and the left than they have been heretofore, or they were certainly <coughs> with um, with Enda Kenny. So I think that theatrical element... is that just element- a question of style or does it reflect, uh, you know, a, a stronger antipathy to the positions? Now, here's, yes, here's the second point I was about to make. One other thing about the substance of what he said yesterday um, also struck me, and I think that it is a window on the sort of premiership that uh, that he will have and therefore the influence that that would bring to bear on our uh, our political debate in that in his attack on uh, on Mary Lou and on Sinn Féin he pointed uh, he, he accused Sinn Féin of not wanting to be in government anywhere not wanting to be in government with the North now that is something that previous Tishik have kind of refrained from of making partisan political uh, partisan political points on a regular basis about um, uh, uh, about the North, about Sinn Féin. Mm. Of course, there <coughs> accusations of things what Sinn Féin does in, uh, in government in the North, but accusing them directly and making uh, a central point of the uh, failure of the Northern uh, the Northern parties to agree um, a resumption of the uh, the executive and the institutions suggests to me that the gloves are coming off a bit when it comes to the North. Sir? Um, well, I think I'd, if I was Merleau, I'd take it as a compliment because um, obviously Leo Varadkar sees her as a threat to his position because uh, hours later when he addressed uh, Trinity College, he said that Mary Lou could potentially be the second Taoiseach to come from Trinity College. So I don't necessarily think Mind that... You, he also mentioned uh, Pascal Donoghue and, and Derek Leary, Derek Leary as yeah. well. Yeah. But I think it's just a... It's a crop of Trinity graduates indeed. they have there, isn't it? Um, I think it's just... Like Leo, during his um, leadership campaign, said that if he was elected Taoiseach, he would make it his business to show the wider demographic that Sinn Féin was the greatest threat to democracy. So he's obviously, as Pat says, zoning in on them for um, for attack. But I think, you know, one thing you you will see now is that Sinn, Sinn Féin will become the line of attack from both the uh, Fianna Fáil party and the government. And we've seen that um, since the political term really has begun. Micheál Martin has very much uh, got Sinn Féin in the line of fire. Um, I suppose I just wanted to ask some, own something because when we were at the Fianna Fáil uh, away day in County Longford, he made some comments about you. He said, um, he was referring to comments that you'd made about the Tom Oliver case and he said that um, what essentially what Gerry Adams says, Mary Lou, Pierce Doherty and Ono Brin say essentially implying that you're Gerry Adams' puppets. Um, but he also said that you were um, IRA apologists and that you were cult-like and uh, as referring to you in particular because of your comments about Tom Oliver he said that Fianna Fáil would never go into coalition with Sinn Féin and I suppose you just haven't had an opportunity to respond directly to him so, so and, and in some senses Michal's comments are, are make the same point which is is Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael are scared of Sinn Féin there's no doubt about that they're scared of us in constituencies they've seen what we can do in constituencies such as my own where we eclipse Fianna Fáil and, and we run Fine Gael to a very close second uh, and they're also nervous about the politics and the policies we're proposing, which is why they don't want to debate them. Uh, Michal Co- Martin's comments were untrue. Uh, he attributed comments to me, which I've never said. Um, 
uh, uh, and the the reference he made was to a, a quote that I had in a Irish Independent article. I made very clear in that article that any family who had any member uh, of their family killed during the course of the conflict has a right to truth and justice. Uh, Sinn Féin has signed up to that principle in the Fresh Start Agreement and the St Andrews Agreement. And that includes families not only having the right to know what happened to their loved ones, having the right to an apology, to reparations, but also to, to pursuing what they would see as justice through the courts, including prosecutions. So you disagree with so, what your leader said? Uh, no, because Gerry Adams made the same point. What Mihal Martin has done and what the Sunday Independent done uh, is they have deliberately skewed comments Gerry made uh, to suggest that we're trying to block people uh, uh, dealing with these matters to the courts. We have supported, not only have we supported, but we've signed up to agreements in the North that explicitly give people that right because they have that right. Um, now, why is Micheál Martin deliberately, willfully and dishonestly misrepresenting me and others? Because he doesn't want to have a debate about the issues which people in our constituencies want to talk about, which is housing, which is health, which is childcare, uh, which is uh, all of those other issues. Uh, and after Micheál produced his remarks, I had a look at them and I kind of thought, you know, I could challenge him because he was just lying. He was just making up and, and there's no quote he can point to of mine which uh, says anything close to what he attributed to me. Uh, but actually, I have a much bigger job to be doing, which is to be raising those important substantive issues, including the issues, for example, of truth and justice for families uh, uh, who lost loved ones through the course of the conflict, which I don't believe Micheál Martin has any serious interest uh, uh, or attention to. If he was he'd be saying, why don't we have the truth recovery processes that are required under the St Andrews Agreement and under the uh, the Fresh Start Agreement? One of the central things uh, that is preventing the re-establishment of the Assembly, which is blocked by Unionists and the British government. So I doesn't, suppose... Doesn't mud stick on? I mean, like, if you constantly have this... this your your opposition uh, referring to Sinn Féin as cult-like and IRA apologists. And that's, I suppose, not... The, the cult-like theory is not helped by the bullying problem that is... Uh, that is uh, un- ongoing in your party I mean that sort of stuff sticks to Sinn Féin and it, it doesn't and if it did you know Sinn Féin wouldn't be getting over 20% of the vote in a quarter of the constituencies we wouldn't be the second largest or the largest party in those constituencies we wouldn't be growing in others Sinn Féin doesn't have a bullying problem uh, there are a number of instances of councillors resigning and there are instances of that there's and, a pattern no 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 and, but, but there's and that's an issue I'm happy to talk about but I do not accept. Look, I've been in the party 22 years. I've operated in three or four different constituencies at, at a grassroots level. There isn't a problem or a culture of bullying. We're not a cult. But why does Micheál Martin say these things? Because Micheál Martin doesn't want to have a straight head-to-head debate with us about housing, about health, about childcare, uh, about, for example, low-paying employment. And he doesn't want to have the debate around why his party is alleging to be in opposition and is continually facilitating a government which is leaving so many people behind. That's not me wanting to avoid those discussions. I'm happy to talk about what's happening with councillors in the party or indeed to talk about how we deal with the legacy issues arising from the conflict. But aren't both those but, issues, and maybe we'll just dig into the, the bullying one in, in a minute, it, hasn't Fianna Fáil probably correctly and Fine Gael recognised that those two issues, a, sort of a, 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 a distrust of the way the party does its internal business and the, the legacy and the history of the party and its, 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 its roots in the, in the Troubles are a way of keeping a lid on what you proudly proclaimed to be the Sinn Féin vote and making sure that it doesn't go over 20% to 25% or 30%. Isn't well, that it, the objective? Uh, and it, it, they wouldn't be doing it if they didn't it think is, it was going to work? It, it is absolutely the intention. I, I don't believe it will have that impact. Um, so, for example, why is Sinn Féin in a quarter of the constituencies the largest or second largest party and weaker elsewhere? It's not because of anything Michael Martin does or doesn't do. It's because the party is in a period of growth and development and we're stronger in some areas than Isn't others. Isn't there an electoral resistance to Sinn Féin in some quarters because of those all, sorts of issues? All I can say is if you come to my 
constituency, which is a large working class and middle class constituency. Uh, uh, none of those issues are barriers to, for example, in Dublin Midwest, Sinn Féin getting 23% of the vote and running Fine Gael very, very close uh, uh, to, to top the overall party poll. And that's replicated in many, many other constituencies. Uh, the reason why we don't have that strength of vote elsewhere is because the party's organisation is weaker or because of other things and their issues that we're in the process of building. I think you're absolutely right. Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael are scared of Sinn Féin. And not just scared of our party, but scared of the policies we're promoting because they know that we're exposing uh, uh, their weaknesses and their failure to meet the real needs of huge sections of people. Uh, but rather than having that conversation, and this goes back to the point about leaders' questions, uh, they'll divert. And I absolutely accept that there's a certain theatricality to leaders' questions. But what's important about leaders' questions is whether the opposition puts direct questions to the Taoiseach of the day. And the Taoiseach has a responsibility to engage in that debate as theatrically as he wants, that's okay. But what you saw yesterday, and it was a characteristic of Enda Kenny before him and uh, uh, the Taoiseach and the Taunishta in the previous government, is simply avoiding talking about those issues uh, and sidelining onto misrepresentations of Sinn Féin's position or what's happening inside the party organisation to avoid the debate about the substantive issues. And all I'll say to you is this. They might think that's a smart move. They might think that's a smart strategy. I don't think it'll work come election time. Pat, in relation... It's not... Michael Martin Martin and Enda Kenny, or or the media or anybody else, didn't make Sinn Féin councillors resign. Hmm. They all resigned and they're telling a story that has consistent threads within it relating to uh, how party organisation works internally. I think there are reasons, you know, based in fairly obvious history for that. And I think is it that possible is that those are growing pains, Pat? That, that as, as Sinn Féin transforms itself from one type of an organisation into another organisation, that this is part of yeah, becoming uh, perhaps... You know, you know lo- looking at it in, the more broad, in a broader context, uh, uh, it is, but it's no... There's no point, I think, for Sinn Féin representatives to deny that it was one sort of an organisation, even if it is transitioning into another sort of an neither, neither of those things are how I experienced the party. Right? So I'm not saying there isn't an issue in terms of the council resignations. I'm not saying that's an issue we shouldn't be dealing with or talking about. Absolutely we are. But there's a huge difference between that and saying that there is a culture of bullying within the party, which not only I don't accept, but is a huge insult to the thousands of party members who give voluntary time to build this organisation. What I'll say to you is this, and this is my own experience. We demand an awful lot from our elected representatives. So generally speaking, with councillors from other political parties, they usually have full-time jobs. They're usually relatively disconnected from party structures. You know, so long as they abide by the broad parameters of party policy, they get a by ball. That's not how Sinn Féin operates. It's not how we operated when I joined the party 22 years ago, and it's not how we operate today. And it's not that the party is changing, just the party is growing. We expect our elected representatives, and that includes me, to be accountable to a party structure, uh, which includes elected officers from Commons and Court Accounters, and for us to report back to those because they are the people who get people like me elected. We expect uh, uh, our elected representatives to obey the whip and to implement party policy. And I think the one thing that's very clear is there are some people who went into the role of elected representatives and find it's much more difficult in there than they originally thought. That's possibly our fault for not explaining that to people fully enough. Uh, That's possibly our fault for not managing some of those tensions. We also have really good Republicans, long-standing Republicans, who for very long periods of time were the only shinner in the village. And now that the party has grown and there's younger people and other people there, they're finding it difficult to adjust. So do I think there are organisational issues which have led to the resignation you're talking about? I absolutely do. That is not the same as suggesting that there is a culture of bullying or we treat people badly. I just don't accept it. I know these constituencies very, very well, and I know almost all of the people very, very well. 
Uh, and I simply do not accept that that's what's happening in our party. I think that's quite an interesting kind of window onto, in, onto how Sinn Féin operates uh, internally. And it's something, you know, that I suppose those who work in the media have a greater responsibility to, 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 to shine a light on because, you know, the party is becoming more important in our politics. But what Owen says, basically, is that is Sinn Féin local representatives, from what I, what I take from what you say, is your first responsibility is to the or- and your first no. accountability is to the organisation to the party not to the voters that elected them no and that's that's not the words it shows look I'm elected on a manifesto by the voluntary effort of Sinn Féin activists no uh, you're elected by the voters no, no, of your but, constituency but first of all on the voluntary effort people have to go out and secure those votes they have to campaign they have to canvass they have to fundraise so first of all I have a responsibility to the party and to the manifesto but also when I go to the electorate I go to the electorate on that manifesto to stand over those policies that I've been given votes for I don't see any contradiction between me being held to account by the party that supports and, and work to get me elected and fulfilling my commitments to the to the electorate in fact, what I would say is, in some senses, the structure we have ensures that our elected representatives do what they said they would do when they went to the voters. But one uh, thing that keeps emerging, only I don't think you can deny this, is that the structures are failing. Is that every time somebody ha- seems to, the people who've resigned from what I when I what I have read and what I have heard is that when they have an issue and they seek the party's support and they go to their um, the representatives and a lot of them have gone to hierarchy a lot of them rely on Mary Lou in particular and raise the concerns with her is that the party structures close in on them and that they are not helped by the party and then therefore they see no opportunity but No, the the party has as the party has grown the party has developed very, very clear uh, uh, dispute resolution procedures and disciplinary procedures as any large organisation has to do Uh, and those procedures are there so let's say for example I have a difficulty in my constituency let's say I feel uh, that the the party management structure is is you know doing something that I'm not happy about and wants me to do something. There's clear procedures there in place, and in fact, lots of us you know raise issues and and manage our way through uh, issues through the party structures. Those ones you never get to hear about because obviously we manage those. Mm. You're, there's no question that we've had a number of high pro- profile resignations. Some of those, I think, are just people who weren't able to cope with the growth of the party and the increasing accountability that the party places on. I think that's regrettable, but in those instances, I think the party did everything it could. I also think there are cases where people became elected representatives at our request and at their uh, agreement, and I think over time actually rise, do you know what, this is just too big, this is just, it it takes too much. Um, I think we have a responsibility in the party to always improve our dispute resolution uh, management and and disciplinary procedures and always review after cases. But I also think in a large organisation, these are part of the things that happen, right? And these are just the consequences of life. People fall out, people leave. When people leave and they feel their noses are out of joint, they'll make accusations. Sometimes they make those accusations and they genuinely feel those accusations to be accurate. Sometimes people throw accusations around because they just feel hard done by. But again, I, I go back to the central point, which is, do I believe there is a culture of bullying in our party? or that we don't have fair procedures for dealing with with difficulties that emerge in every organisation. I don't accept that. Can we improve? Of course we can. And that's something we do all the time anyway. I, the clock is ticking as I hear producers waving, waving with some concerns. I want to get on to one of the I'm going to use presenter privilege here and ask you ask you a question from my point of view. I live in Dublin City Council. I pay property tax. Uh, there's property tax uh, reduction, which was uh, voted in by the council, including, as I understand it, Sinn Féin members. I would have been perfectly happy to pay that 15%. I look around the city and I could see a thousand ways in which that money could be spent better than being in my pocket. Uh, why is Sinn Féin, as a party of the left, 
uh, not supporting taxes on assets, which have to be part of a more equitable distribution of taxation. So two, two answers. The first is the council didn't vote to reduce the property tax. Uh, we voted to keep the property tax at the same level as it has been over the last With the full of reduction, years. the full 15% my, reduction. My point is this. There was no vote to reduce the property tax on what people have been paying over the last number of years. It was to maintain the same level. And the reason we do that is because there are huge numbers of, of average income working families out there and any increase in taxation from any sort on them is going to be incredibly difficult. Now is not the time to increase taxes on those families, particularly when other costs in their lives are increasing. The, the second thing is this, the property tax isn't just a tax on assets. It's one of the things that people seem to confuse. It's also a tax on debt for people who are in negative equity. It pays no attention to ability to pay, despite the fact that uh, other jurisdictions actually include an element of that. Uh, and it wasn't introduced to fund local government services. One of the things a lot of people don't know is when the property tax was first introduced, every property, every euro of property tax that, say, Dublin City Council got, central government withdrew a euro of what had been previously central government grants. So on the one hand, there's no extra money, but also services were privatised and you're ending up paying for additional services through the private sector. So the property tax should be scrapped. Uh, and we have a, a clear party position to ensure it is maintained at the lowest possible level within the powers that councils have. By. I think we, we need to have a serious discussion over what is the best way to fund our local uh, government services. The Oireachtas Committee has actually agreed, the Housing Committee they're on, to spend some considerable time later this year, early next year, to come up with that. Because everybody has said, historically, since the abolition of rates in 77, we've never had a decent way of funding local government services. And they're right. But nobody has come up with a model. Property taxes were not introduced to fund local government services. They were introduced as a revenue raiser at a time the government was in financial difficulty and they took a decision to increase the revenue on, in many cases, families who didn't have the funds to pay. So my view is you scrap that, right, because you just can't reform it. But you sit down and say, what's the best way? And, so and Sinn Féin doesn't have a proposal on what's are, the best way, even are, though there are, across Europe, there lo are, local taxes and property taxes of some sort always form part of the mix. There are strong arguments for a central government-funded model, and there are strong arguments for some kind of local taxation model, whether based on services or, or on property. We haven't decided ourselves which one of those we prefer. For the moment, general taxation is what we have advocated. But I suppose what I'm saying is this. There's, there's an argument out there that I hear that people are saying the property tax is about funding local services. That's not what it was designed to do. That's not what it does. And see those left-wing parties that support property taxes or service tax in other European jurisdictions, they wouldn't have supported the property tax as it's designed. Because as I said, it's not just a tax on an asset. It's a tax on debt. And it takes no account of ability to pay. And they are fundamental elements to any progressive uh, left-leaning tax system, uh, which weren't included in that, of course, because it was designed by right-wing politicians. And that's one of the many reasons it should be scrapped. Does, what I'll also say does is that this, not really come back to where we started, which is Leo Varadkar's uh, accusation that there's a sort of totally bogus form of opposition, that you're not actually putting forward a replacement for no, it. You're we, just, you're, we, you're, you're afraid of being outflanked by, we, the, by Solidarity and PBP. Absolutely so not. you've got to, you and, know, you've got to hold the line on this. In, in every alternative budget, and we'll do the same when we launch it next week, in every alternative budget, for example, when we talk about scrapping a tax, whether it was water tax or, or, or water charges or property tax, we always outline a fully costed uh, a tax revenue alternative. So we can stand over those. People can argue that might be the right way, the wrong way, but we always stand over those. Uh, and I suppose the one thing we'll say is, and the universal social charge was a good example. Universal social charge, hugely unpopular. Many of us opposed it when it was introduced. 
But in fact, in the last general election, uh, we were probably the only political party, bar the Social Democrats, who argued not to scrap it because the revenue that's there is required, whereas the far left uh, and Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael wanted it scrapped or phased out. So I think our credibility on the tax issue is very clear. A lot of the people who voted for me, they pay a lot of universal social charge. But when I went out on the doors and explained to them that money is required for health, education, housing and childcare we were able to win people over. So do we engage in in fiscally reckless populist politics? No, we don't. But the property tax is a bad tax and needs to go. Do others, do PPP um, solidarity engage in reckless politics? I think anybody who proposed the abolition of the USC, given the huge volume of money that it represents, I think that's reckless because there is no way of of raising that money alternatively. But I think, for example, with the whatever four hundred oh, million, hold on a minute now. You can't, you can't with, say that. With the, promising to abolish one tax is no, uh, there's, uh, is there's, reckless, but promising to abolish another no, one isn't. But promising to abolish a tax that raises four hundred million and replacing it with another source for that four hundred million is one thing. Promising to abolish a tax that can raise up to five billion euros, where are you going to get that money elsewhere? And I suppose for me, it's it's not that this tax or that tax, it's the volume of revenue the USC raises. Can it be improved and can it, can it be made more fair? Absolutely. But that money from the USC is central. So all I'm saying is, for those people who accuse us of fiscally reckless populism, the USC is the answer to that. Oh, and Brian, we gave you the last word. Thanks very much as always for coming in. And that's it for this edition of Inside Politics. Thanks also to Pat Leahy and to Sarah Barden for joining us today. And thanks as always to our producer Declan Conlon and engineer JJ Vernon. Remember that you can find us on irishtimes.com slash podcasts or you can subscribe via iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast provider might be. And we're always grateful if you take a moment to share or recommend the podcast. Remember you can mail me at hlinahan at irishtimes.com or you can always find me on Twitter. But until the next time, goodbye and thanks very much indeed for listening.